Hello and welcome to Rocket Accelerated Geek Conversation. I almost said Greek for some reason. What the <laughs> heck? Uh, hey, I'm Simone de Rochefort. I'm a senior video producer at Polygon. And I'm here as always with Christina Warren, senior cloud advocate at Microsoft and Brianna Wu, video game developer. Um <laughs> And our show is brought to you by ExpressVPN and Pingdom. Wow, I really boned that intro in every conceivable way. Will I redo it? No, that's just a little bit of the authenticity that you, my listeners, pay for with your sanity. (laughs) I thought it was the proper amount of boning that intro. Like, that's my opinion. It was well boned. It was well boned. We all have our limits. Uh, We have a really exciting show for you today, but first, we are going to bring on a special guest for our first topic. Let's uh, take it away. All right. For our first topic today, we have a very exciting special guest, and that person is Nina Jankowitz. So her book, How to Lose the Information War, colon, Russia, Fake News, and the Future of Conflict, came out in (laughs) June. It's a heck of a title covering, I think, literally every topic that we care about on this show. Um, And this book is informed by Nina's own experience advising uh, governments on how to fight attacks of disinformation. It discusses how Russian ops are run, for example, why they're run, which is a great question that I'm very interested in, and how the U.S. can be more effective or one could say effective at all. Mm. Welcome to the show, (laughs) Nina. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you. Thank you. So yeah, one of the things uh, reading your book, I I think a lot of people don't understand that Ukraine and Russia's attempts there, uh, as far as information warfare, really set the stage for what's happening in the United States. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about your experience with that and how those events kind of inform what's happening in the United States now? Sure, absolutely. So my whole lens on this issue has always been through Eastern Europe. I uh, I did a lot of degrees in, in Russian studies and found myself working in a democracy support organization here in the States right out of grad school that worked on, in particular, Russia and Belarus. Those were my, my portfolio, those bastions of democracy. And um, as the Ukraine crisis unfolded in 2013 and 2014, and really the, the term fake news first came to light, there's this organization in Ukraine called stop fake news. And I think that's where a lot of people first started using uh, that terminology. I really became interested in in what Russia was doing and what we could learn from it. And so I went on a Fulbright fellowship to Ukraine in 2016 and 2017, um, advising the foreign ministry there on strategic communications. And even at that point, so two years into uh, Europe's only hot war. Um, the foreign ministry, the Ukrainian government, were still on a daily basis just really trying to set the record straight about what was going on in Ukraine. Uh, you know, Russia was leaving troll comments all over message boards and news articles. It was creating these fake news articles. Um, and a lot of the tactics that were tried out on those front lines of the information war have since made their way to the United States. So, for instance, the inter- Internet Research Agency had its own Ukraine unit that was uh, trying out some of the tools and tactics that it used on us um, before they were used on us and, and really perfecting them. Um, and so when Trump was elected in, in 2016, I was in Kiev and it seemed to me like 
we really had not heard the clarion call, not only from Ukraine, but from other Eastern European countries that had been dealing with this for more than a decade at that point. Um, and there was a lot to learn. And so that's that's why I wrote this book, because they've tried a lot of the things that we are discussing now. Um, they've dealt with a lot of the same domestic struggles that we're dealing with, which is something that really came through for me when I was writing in the book that I did not expect. Um, a lot of people will be like, what do we have to learn from you know countries that have only been democratic for the past 30 years? And the answer is a lot. Yeah, and I no think kidding. We, need to, <laughs> we really need to dispense with that hubris at this point because we are, are losing ground. Just to give our listeners a little bit of background on this, you know, Russia annexed uh, Crimea, you know, the, the action got them kicked out of the G8, which is now the G7. Their mission objective was to kind of soften the population and get them primed for Russian control. And, you know, as you go into with your book, Nina, it, it followed a very familiar set of tactics, which was tapping into existing divisions that existed in the country and basically setting them aflame. Can can you talk about that and talk about how that has um, basically been rolled into the United States playbook? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a really great and important point. I think a lot of people um, misunderstand that, you know, disinformation, they think it's only about cut and dry fakes when really the most powerful disinformation is the stuff that speaks to truths in our lives, real visceral truths and feelings that we're dealing with. That's why we're seeing so much coronavirus disinformation right now, for instance. Um, So in Ukraine, there's a lot of societal fissures that Russia or any other bad actor can exploit. You know, um, there's a lot of leftover ethnic and linguistic tensions, not only from the Soviet period. So around half-ish of the population speaks Russian as their native tongue. Most people speak both languages. Ukrainian is the state language. Um, But there's also you know, leftover ethnic tensions from uh, World War II. So the borders of Europe obviously shifted a lot uh, in the post-war period. And so there are still folks who speak kind of a Polonized version of Ukrainian. There's Hungarian speakers in, in the Western part of Ukraine. And there's also this historical legacy of some uh, Ukrainian national heroes who collaborated with Nazis. Uh, there's, you know, issues with things like Chernobyl. Uh, there is a history of corruption in Ukraine. And all of these issues Issues that people feel very strongly about are the things that Russia has used in its disinformation narratives in Ukraine. And in the book in particular, I talk about uh, the referendum that the Netherlands voted on in 2016, which was a referendum on Ukraine's association agreement with the EU. Uh, this was one of the reasons that Ukrainians wanted a revolution in, in 2013-2014, because they wanted that Western integration. And so every other EU state had signed this association agreement. The Dutch are famously very Eurosceptic. It was brought up to a referendum, and Russia saw an opportunity there. Not only could it undermine Ukraine's Euro-Atlantic integration, it could also undermine European unity um, by kind of exploiting uh, the fissure of the Dutch skepticism for for the European Union. So that's why I I, uh, honed in on that case. And it's also made more interesting by the fact that the MH17 plane crash, which your listeners might remember. I know there were two Malaysian planes. It gets very confusing. But the MH17 <laughs> one was the one that was shot down by Russian separatists in uh, eastern Ukraine in 2014. 
killing over 200 people, many Dutch citizens that had taken off from Amsterdam. And so this was a particularly um, emotional issue for the Dutch public. And if you talk to many Dutch citizens today, they still think, you know, Ukraine's a bunch of terrorists. And uh, and that's in large part because of the Russian narratives that were spread there in 2016. Yikes. So one of, one of the things you talk about in your book that I think is so important is, you know, here in the West, we have a, we have a culture of open discussion, you know, open, we're, we're more free to disagree with the government. Can you talk a bit how this Russian playbook is sort of weaponizing uh, these democratic ideals against us and, and, and using them to basically tear down the democratic institutions they are set up to protect? Yeah, absolutely. So this is, I think, the key problem, especially when we're talking about U.S. messaging abroad. Um, When I used to work for that organization that did democracy support, the National Democratic Institute, uh, Putin used to call us color revolutionists, or he'd say that we were, you know, from the CIA. Believe me, if I had worked for the CIA, uh, (laughs) my my paycheck would be would have been a lot different. uh, (laughs) Right. We we were very open about what we did and and who our funding came from. It was U.S. government funding. Uh, and sometimes other governments, but um, we would have had anybody who wanted to walk into those trainings to learn how to do petitions, to learn how to do constituent services and things like that, outreach. Um, We would have let anybody, even from United Russia, Putin's party, into those trainings. Um, And the difference between what we did and how the U.S. government generally operates and how Russia operates is that Russia operates in the shadows. Uh, Russia doesn't play by rules of transparency and democracy and attribution, right? And, And we do uh, in that overt sphere. Um, So that's really kneecapped us. But also, you know, we like to have authentic discussions. And one of the things that Russia has gotten really, really expert at, and this is a strategy perfected in Eastern Europe over the last 10 years, is using authentic actors uh, in different societies. So whether those are ethnic Russians in Estonia or uh, conservative politicians in Poland who believe there was a conspiracy theory to down a plane that killed their president or, you know, different activists on the left or the right here in the United States, they launder their messages through these authentic actors so that it's much more difficult for us to weed them out and take action against them. Because especially here in the United States, we do not want to touch that First Amendment. We don't want to, right. you know, moderate content in a way that's going to take away people's First Amendment rights. And we shouldn't. Um, but it's a lot more difficult than just playing what I call whack-a-troll and removing <laughs> fake accounts and, and fake posts. It's because these things are getting posted by real Americans. Yeah, actually, and, and that's that that brings up kind of an interesting point. This week, I don't know if you saw the story, but the Daily Beast um, yesterday, as we record this, so this was Monday of this week. Um, uh, uh, Adam um, Rons- Ronsley uh, posted like a, a deep dive investigation into a bunch of fake accounts or fake journalists, basically things that had been uh, reported in, in you know on conservative websites like Newsmax and Newsmax and the Washington Examiner and other sites, and the de- the depths that went into creating the personas of the the people that published on these, you know, sites that whether you like the content or not are, you know, uh, legitimate, um, was incredible. You know, it, it's not just so much as, you know, like, um, creating a, a fake name and maybe taking a photo and reversing the image to make it harder to find, you know, it was using artificial intelligence to literally create fake 
like non-existent people yeah. um, and, and personas. Um, and so, you know, that that makes it even that much more difficult when you have these like illegitimate actors. And then to your point, a lot of times this is being laundered through legitimate sources too, who have been, I guess, uh, convinced. Is that usually what's happening? They're convinced that what they're reporting, uh, what they're passing on, what they're saying is, is accurate. Is that usually the case? Or is it, um, is there something more uh, sinister involved with like, making them complicit with with posting the the misinformation. I think for the most part uh these folks and I really don't like to use this term but I think in this this case it definitely applies. These are useful idiots, right? They are they're not doing their due diligence in terms of um editorial oversight or uh in some cases when when journalists are, you know, citing fake accounts as sources, things like this. Right. Um that's that's really about journalistic integrity and in the state of the news media and and people are being used and you know, in 2016 that that went farther afield than just conservative outlets. Uh, there were many outlets that were citing um, internet research agency accounts without, you know, doing their due diligence and actually reaching out to those people confirming that they were indeed human beings. Um, <laughs> so, so I think uh, that's that's a big problem. And I, I was so dismayed to see that story on two levels um, from the Daily Beast. One, because I, I had hoped that we had learned our lesson. And it seems that, you know, these editors wanted just, you know, a spicy hot take. Uh, more than they wanted authentic content, and they weren't concerned about whether it was propaganda. We still don't know what what country, of course, is behind um, this latest, you know, caper. Um, but still, it's that's disconcerting. It's also disconcerting as someone who publishes writing, right? Like, I can't tell yeah. you how many times I've had pitches rejected or, or even just gone entirely unanswered or had editors after they commissioned pieces from me ghost me or, you know, been <laughs> shady, shady as hell mm-hmm. in other ways. And yet they're just publishing willy-nilly accounts or, you know, op-eds from folks that don't even exist, that they're AI generated avatars. I mean, it's just shocking. So Um, so I really think we we need to make sure um, in the media that we are doing our due diligence. Anybody who has an editorial role is checking and making sure, you know, with with sources and with editorials that these are coming from from real people doing vetting about what their background is. Because if something's coming from a government, we deserve to know that it's coming from a government and understand the full context of uh, of that messaging. I think something we'd all agree with on this show is, you know, we I I think that the government has a job as far as as wider policy with information warfare, but we don't want them talking to say Daily Beast saying what you can run, what you can't run. And yeah, absolutely. I am of the opinion that the social media platforms bear. It's sort of weird to think about it, but they have a national security responsibility to stand up and and be more proactive in fighting this activity. If you could wave your magic wand and get three things done from, you know, either media or Facebook or Twitter, what what would you think would be the top three things that you would want to see done? Wow, that's a great question. Top three. I'm glad you didn't ask me for just one because <laughs> that would have been really difficult. Okay, so on social media, I think we need um, radical transparency. Uh, I don't want 
social media platforms to be, you know, given a cudgel to remove content uh, willy-nilly. I think that would end up very badly for everyone involved. I'd like to see more transparency. So when that when we're talking about groups, uh, that means knowing more about who is running the group, if they're running other groups, knowing who the people in the groups are. When we're talking about the algorithms, that means understanding why certain things are being recommended to you. I think there's a duty of care on the platforms to explain that to people because most people still don't get how that works. And we don't, there's just not transparency around the algorithms. And, you know, right. there, there should be transparency around advertising as well, understanding why you're seeing something, uh, understanding why you've been targeted with something um, until we get, you know, more fulsome uh, restrictions on who can advertise to whom and for what reason, because those don't exist right now, which is perplexing to me. But we're going to leave that aside right now because that's a whole political mess that we're, we're just not going to get into. If we had a different <laughs> government, things would look very different. Um, the second thing that I would do is invest in journalism as a public good. It makes me sick that we only, as a country, invest $3 per person per year in the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Every uh, every country that I've been to and dealt with that has any sort of really um, robust response to disinformation has a robust investment in public media in their country. And I'm not saying, you know, we need state control. Absolutely not. These these organizations should continue, you know, being editorial editorially independent as they are. Um, but one of the really most important things that P- NPR and PBS do is uh, fill the local news vacuum in a lot of news deserts across the country. And you know, it's just the fact that the richest country in the world is spending three dollars per person on uh, on public media. Just it it just I can't I can't understand it. Um, so that's the second thing I would do. I think that would you know make sure that people have a source of information they can turn to during times of crisis. If you look at some of the polling in the UK, uh, even during things like the coronavirus crisis, even though the BBC has made a lot of boo boos recently, uh, <laughs> they they are still highly trusted. Among among the British public at something more than 55%, I think, of the British public trust them in times of crisis. And I cannot think of another outlet um, that would, you know, gain the same trust in the United States. So that's number two. Number three is investing in media and digital literacy. Um, just basic things that every voting age adult should know. You know, there have been studies that show, especially that older adults don't really have the uh, skills necessary to make their way through the flow of information that they're encountering these days because they live their lives with gatekeepers and content curators in the form of TV, radio, and print, uh, which have been, of course, severely upended by social media. And so I think they need some ways, they need to kind of develop a gut check um, that doesn't exist for them. And we often talk about media literacy as something that happens in schools. Yes, that's great. I want to see that happen. Absolutely. That's kind of the easy, easy thing. Even with our federal education system, you know, you can give grant money to states that are investing in this stuff and investing in a curriculum that is you know, grounded in science, um, we need to figure out a way to reach voting age adults. And I think there are a couple of options there. Of course, there are a lot of great civil society organizations doing this stuff. I think libraries are also a great vector. If you look at that yeah. that same trust polling um, that's done by the Pew Research Center, they find that libraries are among the most trusted institution in the United States. And that's saying a lot <laughs> um, in the times <laughs> that we live in. So I think they could serve as a vector uh, for, for, you know, educational 
educational opportunities for adults. There are also, you know, professional development opportunities. You could give tax breaks to corporations that invest in this stuff. The federal government could require it as professional development. Um, And social media firms should be investing more in it as well in consultation with experts because they've had some errors in the past in terms of their, you know, media literacy efforts. But these are billion dollar companies that have ubiquitous access to most Americans' lives, and they really need to be pushed into engaging in a more productive way, I think. I love what you said about libraries. That just that that ties in so well to the idea of the government providing more funding to help people parse the news and read the news, but not be directly involved, (laughs) like as a hand saying, Here's what you should believe, citizens. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, I grew up in Mississippi, and the only news I ever got that was not, you know, Fox News or Rush Limbaugh was NPR. Yeah. And it was so critical for my development to be able to tell, you know, which end was up. And uh, so I obviously very strongly agree with that. Nina, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It was a delight. Oh, can people get your book? And uh, yes, how can they follow you online? Oh, pretty much everywhere. Uh, So yeah, it's great that books are everywhere. I would encourage you to order from your local bookstore, which you can do through IndieBound or Bookshop. But, you know, whatever floats your boat, if you need to order it from Amazon, I'm not going (laughs) to judge you. That's where the ebook is available as well. Um, You can find me online at uh, Wikipedia is my Twitter handle. So W-I-C-Z-I-P-E-D-I-A, which is a play on my last name, which is full of Polish consonants. Anyway, I look forward to seeing you there. Thank you so much, Nina. Have a great night. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. She's amazing. Yeah, she is. That was such a great conversation. She Buy said her book. so many good words, and she said them all very, like, without doing what I'm doing right now. <laughs> You know, yeah, totally get your get your library card, support your local library, support NPR if you can and uh, and buy her book. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. it's really, you know, information uh, warfare is like this surprisingly awesome subgenre of, of literature. Richard uh, Stengel, uh, the former secretary of state that did Voice of America, a former time editor. He wrote a fantastic book about it. Like there are a lot of really great books about this. And Nina's, I would say, is at the top. Mm hmm. Well, folks, this episode of Rocket is brought to you by ExpressVPN, a very fitting sponsor for this show. I think it's (laughs) fair to say we all want to browse the internet without the rest of the world knowing what we're doing. And yeah, Mm -hmm. we've got incognito windows, whatever. But did you know that even in incognito mode, your online activity can still be traced and you can't even use it anymore to look at Wall Street Journal articles. So like, what's the point? It doesn't matter where you get your internet from. Your internet service provider can see every single website you've ever visited. (laughs) Talking about being boned, am I right? That's a callback (laughs) to the intro. That's why you need ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through secure servers so your internet service provider can't see the sites you visit. It's available on all of your devices, which is great, not just your computer, but also your smart TV and your phone. So there's no excuse for you not to be using it. That I did not know that about incognito windows, y'all. I'm freaked out. I, I just like this because I like to watch TV from the countries that aren't mine because guess what? We're not going to be allowed to leave this continent, us Americans, nope, uh, unfortunately. for a very long time. <laughs> Some of us have family overseas. It doesn't matter. 
We Doesn't aren't going to see them. <laughs> uh, we, we, as a society, have not earned it, but ExpressVPN can at least let us watch that content, mm-hmm. I guess. I, may not I be just able don't to want do the government trip. knowing how much I watch Simone videos on Quibi. That's, yes, that's, that's I just, super I embarrassing for you. I don't need anyone knowing that information. Comcast <laughs> does not need to know that. <laughs> well, but also be safe. Protect your online activities today with the VPN rated number one by CNET and Wired. Go to expressvpn.com slash rocket and you can get an extra three months free on a one year package. That's expressvpn.com slash rocket to learn more. Our thanks to ExpressVPN for their support of Rocket and all of Relay FM. Well, 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 it has been a (laughs) drama-filled week. So last Wednesday, what I'm going to guess is either right after we recorded or during the recording. It was right after. It was right after. Of course it it was. Yeah, it was like like two, two and a half hours later because I – when it started, I was you waiting for delivery. Well, yeah, because I, I was I was waiting for delivery, so I missed the first part of the drama. Um, but wait, what I is was... the drama, Simone? You're asking. Yes, a bunch of people. <laughs> had a bunch a, of people a, are fighting over stuff. A terrible, long, and intriguing conversation on Clubhouse. Clubhouse is an audio-only app that is much used by VCs and celebrities. It's invite-only, much like the dating service Raya, which won't let me join. The people in the conversation were mostly entrepreneurs and venture capitalists, and they were talking about uh, about journalists and uh, journalistic representations of their companies, but also sub-talking, I guess, about workers' quality of life, because many of the stories that have brought their companies under fire have been about complaints from workers. So this seems to be kind of following in the footsteps of this feud that's been happening um, because of reporting on Steph Corey, the former co-CEO, now former co-CEO of Away. Um, And then also involved in that is entrepreneur Balaji Srinivasan, who has stepped up to defend Steph Corey after um, stories about her. And then New York Times reporter Taylor Lawrence, who has often reported on tech companies and their many uh, failings. Uh, so this is coming after a long legacy of negative reporting about worker quality of life at these companies. Yeah, but 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 I would say that the, this specific conversation, because disclosure to listeners, I was on the call. I wasn't a participant, but I was a listener. Uh, was very much about uh, an argument that Twitter uh, that that Taylor and Balaji got into on Twitter. Uh, it, it was about more things than that, but that was really what kind of kicked off the conversation was was their interaction earlier that day. Yes, which really puts it in perspective. And it certainly, I, it, I think it would not have been newsworthy, except it seems to have boiled down to a lot of wealthy people wondering how they can make journalists write better stories about them, <laughs> while also saying such gems of quotes as this one from Nate Jones of Andreas and Horowitz uh, VC firm. Um, they... There's a quote-unquote pressure on many reporters to find the next one of these stories inside of a fast-growing tech company because those stories play very well on Twitter, especially around protecting vulnerable people, quote-unquote. So essentially, stories about protecting vulnerable people play well, so they should find more stories about how people are being victimized by the companies they work for and tell them, and that's bad? Okay, 
Um, but Christina, you were actually, you were listening to this call as yeah. it was happening. Can you tell yes. us a little more about it? Sure. So I joined a little bit late because as I was alluding to, I was actually waiting for my uh, McDonald's delivery and uh, I needed, <laughs> well, I mean, I'm just being honest. Um, and so I, I, like I was, you on it. That's good. I, I mean, I, whatever. So I, I was waiting, I was waiting for my Uber Eats delivery, had my mask on and um, I saw the notification come on that both Balaji and Taylor were in clubhouse. And I was like, oh, this is going to be like drama. I'm, I'm, I'm in like, I, I didn't know you know, what all was going to happen then. But I like saw the notification. I was like, oh, this is going to be like, I'm, I'm glad I'm getting my food. Well, by the time <laughs> I joined, um, Taylor had left the conversation because she didn't feel comfortable um, being like on a call and kind of like in a conversation with Balaji, who she has said has been harassing her on Twitter and who she has viewed as sending other people out to harass her. Um, and so she left. Uh, and, and that you know, I, I will say, I think that for the first, you know, there were a number of people who were still trying to be uh, fairly kind of even keeled about like kind of that elephant in the room about, you know, the the beef between the two of them. And the conversation was was aimed at, at least at first, of being broader about kind of this uh, push and pull that we've been having between um, uh, tech and, and big tech especially, but also, you know, venture-funded companies and um, uh, journalism. And you know, it, but it, it did devolve at some points into just from my perspective as someone who has worked in both and was a, was a tech reporter for a decade and now works, um, at, you know, at a tech company. Um, it, I wanted to rip my hair out at, at a lot of points, <laughs> at a lot of the things that people were saying, but it seemed, cause to me, what was, I kind of couldn't wrap my mind, uh, my mind around was that it really did seem like this was a conversation where, both sides, if, if you can even put it that way, are coming at this sort of um, situation from completely different perspectives. Like the the people who were on the Clubhouse call and the people who were talking. And, and the way that Clubhouse works is that you can have um, a certain number of speakers and people are invited to be able to have the opportunity to speak. And you have people who are just kind of in the audience listening. And it's an ephemeral conversation. It's not recorded. It's, uh, you know, the, the rules so far have been that it's kind of supposed to be like Chatham House rules, meaning, you know, you don't talk about what happens in Clubhouse, you know, after the fact. Um, it does turn, it, it turns out that someone did uh, record um, you know, uh, a, a portion of the call, not the whole thing, and and shared it with Vice. Um, and and even frankly, when it was when the call was happening, me and some others were were tweeting, not like explicitly, but we were kind of subtweeting. And like, I was like, okay, like I'm losing my mind. I can't believe this call right now. Um, but there was this massive disconnect that I, I truly wasn't expecting from my perspective of how the media and how media works and what the priorities are from people who are in venture capital and people who are founders. And that to me was just kind of like, I, I didn't really know how to wrap my mind around that because I didn't expect that, you know, we talk about media literacy and I'm thinking, okay, but, but surely, you know, these people who've been around for a long time and have been successful and, and have access to lots of money um, know how stuff works. No, very clearly uh, they, they don't or either, you know, I, I'm not going to put aspersions there, whether it's intentionally or whether it's just like a, a fundamental misunderstanding of what different goals are. But it was just like, it was just kind of an insane conversation, to be totally honest. And um, I will say that there was someone on the call, I'm not going to name the person because I don't think that's fair to her, but there was someone who was actually, 
I think being very nuanced and very balanced and offering good perspective to everybody and was was stepping in and, and defending Taylor when that needed to happen and and also just kind of talking about the broader kind of chasm right now between tech and journalism. But uh, yeah, no, I mean... I mean, can I can I offer an opinion call. on this? Sure. Um, so I I listen to this whole thing, and I, I do want to cover the fallout in a bit. But as far as the content of the call itself, I I thought large portions of it were reasonable, which isn't yeah. to say I agreed with it. You had someone that was black talking about. In the the his perspective on journalism and you know what his expectations were as a as a black person uh, with the coverage that that he got, you had multiple women kind of standing up and trying to talk about the elephant in the room with Taylor, and I thought that was well said. I I really thought like seventy percent of this conversation was if not stuff I agreed with, like something a reasonable person could, could say. Sure. Where I really, really thought it went off the rails. I am not a, a Jason instinctual hater. Like I know hating Jason on Twitter is like, uh, you know, and, it's and a, Jason, it's a Jason for listeners is Jason Calacanis, yeah. who's oh, a, sorry. a, a, yes. a Jason well-known Calacanis. venture capitalist and, yeah. and podcaster and media guy. And yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so he's, I know a lot of people just love dunking on him on Twitter. He's also, for me, in that category with, I agree with maybe 10% of what he says, but I think he's interesting. Yeah. This was not his night. <laughs> this was oh, not no. his night. Because every time he talked about media, it was so disconnected, and he's quoting South Park, trying to make his points about media. It really just came down to the hubris. Like, do you really, I realize there's a lot of, frankly, arrogance that goes with the VC community. But do you really think like you're so damn smart that you can just wander into a situation and come up with some magical solution yes. for journalism that people that have worked here their whole careers and are, are bleeding to save their publications can't come up with? Yes. Like, are you really that cocky? And it yes. just it, it felt <laughs> like someone that was... A freshman in college and just felt like they were the sm- God's gift of the discourse, blathering, uh, uh, just without basic information on this topic. I mean, does yeah, no. that strike you as accurate, Christina? Um, yeah, and and I don't know if he was. I don't even recall him being on the call, so I don't know if if um, he was the the, the speaker. I don't want to. I don't want to name you know or like like you know give that because the audio went out. But like you don't know who all was was speaking. But no, without a doubt, like many of the people who were talking and many of the ideas were definitely that. That's not an un, that's not a wrong perspective. And to be totally candid, I do think that many many people who are entrepreneurs and have been successful and have successfully raised money and have access to lots of money do think that they can just walk in and disrupt something. Um, I, I also think that a lot of journalists uh, have a certain amount of arrogance and, and you know, think that that they have, you know, some sort of, like, ownership of, of righteousness and, and of, of, of what is right and what is truth, right? Like, I think that both parts, to be totally honest, I'm not playing a both sides game, but I do think because I've been in both professions, that both professions can be, like, just really annoying and, and gross, um, and, but, but it's interesting cause I, I definitely, you know, the, there was a lot of conversation around about who's in, who has the power 
And I think because Taylor works with the New York Times, that gave her, like, from their perspective, this massive amount of power that she doesn't have, um, or that they were at least like kind of giving to her. And and from their perspective as founders, you know, they're feeling like, oh, we don't have any power, and these people can come in and ruin our business and, and ruin our, you know, um, what what we're building based on what they're writing. The great example of that was Balaji talking about how he stood up for Steph Corey because she only has eight thousand Twitter followers right. versus however many Taylor has. So it was very much equating power not with running a company and with the ability to accrue capital um, and the ability to ha- like have access to venture capitalists, for example, but with the court of public opinion, which I think right. says a lot. I, I think without a doubt. And I do think and it's, and it's weird because for all the talk of disruption and all the talk about like wanting to get rid of like traditional systems that represent power, this genuinely would not have been a conversation if the person who commented and look Taylor's posts you know were were snarky or whatever they were but like there aren't weren't anything worse than what anybody else says on Twitter all the time it wouldn't have been an issue if she didn't if she didn't have a high profile and she didn't work for the New York Times like if it had been me when I worked at Gizmodo who had said the exact same thing I guarantee you it never would have turned into any of this. So it's it's sort of funny to me that, you know, for all these systems who want to, all these, you know, people who want to disrupt all these systems still kind of adhere to traditional power structures and, oh, it's the New York Times, so it matters without actually understanding it's like, look, Taylor does great reporting, but Taylor is not a journalist like Mike Isaac. Um, mm-hmm. She she writes for the style sections, she writes on trends. She's not doing investigative reporting. That's not the sort of journalist she is. And in fact, she had nothing to do with the the away story. You know that was done by The Verge, um, and and so it was just it, I don't know it, that that was sort of interesting to me that there was very much this. I mean, it seemed like you know I, I totally understand the point of view that outsiders might take or that media people might take, which is like this was a bunch of rich people you know whining um, because. As somebody who was in the conversation and has a, a tremendous amount of privilege myself, that was sort of how I felt. I was like, I don't, I don't understand. Like, I, I just fundamentally didn't understand how they were coming to the conclusions they were coming to. And this is what I really found um, not surprising, but deeply hypocritical. So, the the night after all this drama happened, um, you know, you had a lot of VCs and clubhouse people on Twitter raging, raging that their privacy had been violated, and um, you know, uh, they were actually going after uh, our good friend David uh, from Hay, right? They were going after him, calling him an Aryan that enjoyed expensive sports cars. <laughs> I mean, it was it was really embarrassing to see, and this is why I found so hypocritical, is I have literally had conversations with some of these people about Reddit and the need to, uh, I feel, to give administrators at Reddit a, a broader hand in taking down, say, outing people against their will or harassing women in an organized method. And they're like, free speech issue, Brie. You just got to roll with it. That's the price of the First Amendment. But then when it's their conversations being leaked for public obloquy, when they're a million times more of a public figure than the average woman in tech, they're like, gotta shut this down. This is immoral. And it's just, it's, it's such a, I just think it really speaks to some hypocrisy there. 
Yeah. I mean, and look, I, I will say, I think up to this point, because Clubhouse is a relatively small community. It's invite only. It's only on the iPhone. You have to have a test flight invite. Um, and and it's, you know, like, it's it's a lot of celebrities, a lot of venture capitalists. The celebrities usually don't come back. Apparently, Oprah was on once. I, unfortunately, oh. was not on that call, but I would have been there for that. I, I will <laughs> say I did I did host um, um, or I was kind of a guest uh, with a, a Josh Constein on a show that that he does regularly where we had Jared Leto in the audience and then he joined the chat for a bit and that made like 11-year-old me very excited. Um, but, but it's a small community and this is definitely the first time. Ironically, the only real like pop like media that's been written about this other from other than from a funding standpoint has been um, a very very effusively positive post from Taylor in the New York Times um but but up until then you know because this is a, basically an unknown kind of network with a, a very small number of users uh this hasn't happened before and so I do understand the perspective of people thinking okay we all kind of understand that the rules are you're not gonna like you know, broadcaster or recorder or share this this content having said that there is something very different to me about you me and Simone having a conversation ourselves and that being recorded by either an outsider or even one of us and it leaking and that violation of privacy versus us having a conversation on you know, um, a, a live stream that's going out as a podcast and not all of it gets packaged up and put on the RSS feed, but some of it does. And anybody who hears it, hears it. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. th- there's a different expectation of privacy and maybe I'm just paranoid. And I, I I will grant you that that is probably true, but I've never gone into anything that I've ever said on Clubhouse without the explicit expectation that it could be recorded and that it could be used against me in some way. Like I've, I've never, and maybe that's because I'm a woman, maybe it's because I'm a former journalist. Maybe it's because people have tried to go through anything I've ever said or done before to try to, you know, play a game of gotcha. I don't know what it is, but I've never used that app. And I like the app, uh, without the, like, understanding that, yeah, if somebody wanted to, they could record this and, and put this wherever. So be careful what you're saying. I mean, I think this is what I learned in communication law, right? This is where you have the the right to record someone. Does Do you have a reasonable expectation of privacy in that situation? I think most people would compare that to being, you know, outdoors or, you know, in a supermarket or something like that. You don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy if you're broadcasting it on a social media app. Uh, before I move on, I do want to make a correction. Christina, you're right. I was attributing that to do Jason, and it was actually... Uh, Sh- uh, Srinivasan, uh, it was him saying the respect my authority South Park quote. So, want to correct oh, that? Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This episode of Rocket is also brought to you by Pingdom from Solar Winds. Do you have a website? And does your website have a shopping cart, registration forms, or contact us pages? If you answered yes to those questions, then you need Pingdom. Nobody wants their critical website transactions to fail. It means a bad experience for your users and could mean lost business for you. But the good news is you can set up transaction monitoring with Pingdom. Transaction monitoring will alert you when cart checkout checkout forms and login pages fail before they can affect your customers or your business. Pingdom will let you know the amount any of these fail in whatever way is best for you. 
You can customize how you're alerted and who is alerted, depending on the outage severity. Pingdom cares about your users having the smoothest site experience possible, and if disaster strikes, you will be the first to know. It is super easy to get started, so just go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now for a 14-day free trial with no credit card required. And when you sign up, use the code ROCKET at checkout to get a huge 30% off your first invoice. Thank you so much to Pingdom from SolarWinds for their support of this show and Relay FM. Imagine having that security, the comfort, the confidence. <laughs> That's just me, baby. Uh, we're talking about for our dessert a topic that got punted from last week because last week was a big deal. So much happened. Um, but this is arguably an even bigger deal. It is Without Netflix's Eurovision movie. Oh. Simone. You're saying a Eurovision movie made by Americans for Netflix? How could this be good? Well, it just is okay. <laughs> I went in my exp- so this is a Will Ferrell movie. It's Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams. They play the Icelandic entry into Eurovision. Um, and it is exquisite. It is an exquisite film made by somebody who clearly loves Eurovision and like understands the soul of Eurovision, but at the same time understands that Eurovision is a ridiculous extravaganza. (laughs) Um, and the movie plays on in such a way and it is a delight and I made everyone watch it. Thank you for that. It's yes. so good. You're welcome. Thank you for this. I do want to say, I don't consider this a Will Ferrell movie. I think this is a Rachel McAdams movie. Fair. More than it's a Will Ferrell oh, movie. Oh, I would agree. Although although we should note that he's one of the producers. I think he helped write it. His wife is actually Swedish and it got him into like Eurovision. So it did come from a place <laughs> of love for him. Okay. So, so with Fair that, point. yes, I, I'm with you. I consider this a Rachel McAdams movie and she's amazing in it. But I think that this is one of the many reasons I love Will Ferrell because I didn't know about this about him beforehand, but like he has deep love for Eurovision. And, and it, it shows. It, yeah, because you know what I like about this? It, it's similar to some of his other films. I'm actually, I, I yeah, I, I enjoy Will Ferrell. I really liked his Adam McKay stuff. I really liked the stuff that um, he did with um, uh, What's His Face, uh, uh, John C. Riley. But uh, like this, this, in a lot of people's hands, like you could imagine that Adam Sandler would make yeah. this and it would be a mockery. Like, it would right. be mocking and, like, punching down on Eurovision. And this is, like, a celebration of it. Like, yes, it makes fun of, like, the ridiculousness of it, but it's a celebration and, like, it embraces, like, all of that. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't feel like it's, you know, coming down or, or, or criticizing the people who are involved in it and who love it at all. Yeah, I think, I mean, this is why I really love this. Like, the news is dark these days, right? Like, and I sat down with this movie. I'm like, okay, let's <laughs> insistently watch this. Fine, I'll put this on. It starts, it's so, so, it had so much heart. And it it really, like, Will Ferrell believes in himself. And Rachel McAdams believes in herself. And it's not, like, Anchorman starts and the joke is like, you know, they, they're really cruel to Christina Applegate's character. And then eventually they become less awful. Like, it's a, it's a funny movie, but it's kind of a cruel movie at the same time. This is not that 
at all. And I I have to be honest, when Simone starts tweeting at Eurovision, I just it irritates <laughs> me. I'm sorry. I love you, Simone. <laughs> I'm not a Eurovision fan. But this, she's like, I can't stop singing the soundtrack. And I'm like, okay, let me listen to this. It's oh, good. crap. It's good. Damn that was it. my now exact reaction. Like, I saw the trailer. Theater. And I was like, okay, this actually, like, the sets that they're showing in this trailer look like Eurovision stages. Like, it's pitch-perfect recreation. Okay. And then I sat down to watch it, and from the first musical number, which happens at the very beginning of the film, there's this drop in the song, and I was like, oh, crap, this is a Eurovision song. Like, this is a legit Eurovision song. <laughs> and they did such a good job with the music. And... um it's it's just a freaking delight and there's a lot of cameos in there from uh former eurovision stars i have one factual nitpick can i make please 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 share this with us i love knowing that you know that there was something wrong please tell us there's something enormously wrong um so i feel like the other part of this movie is that it's a bit of a travelogue um so many beautiful shots of iceland accept it, love it. And mm-hmm. then they go to Scotland and they go to Scotland for the semifinals and the grand finals. And if you've watched Eurovision, you know that the semifinals and grand finals happen all in a week. There's two semifinal competitions getting like half the countries out of the way. And then there's the grand finals with like the remaining 30. <laughs> it's probably like 16. I don't remember the exact number. Those all happen in the same place and they're held in the country that won the previous year. In Eurovision, the film, they are held in Scotland. Scotland has not participated in Eurovision. The UK <laughs> participates in Eurovision and consistently performs absolutely terribly and they even make a joke about it at one point like the like classic, this was a great nod to us Euro Euroheads out there. They make a joke about the UK getting zero points because hmm. they, they I think got one point last year at Eurovision, uh, and it was terribly depressing. You can't win if you get zero points. The Eurovision would not be held in Scotland unless the UK had won at one point. Um, so I thought that that was a little bit funny. Um, but there are a lot of beautiful shots of Scotland, let me tell you. So maybe they paid for this movie as well. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That might have been part of it. Maybe maybe like the the Scot- like the, the Scottish tourism board was like, we will give you money for this. Um, I had they this were like, feeling right. that they were like, okay, where can we film and who can, what country can they be from? Iceland, you got some money to spare for tourism. Scotland, you got money to spare for tourism. Please help us. So the only thing that bothered me is that, like, Will Ferrell is, like, 12 years older than Rachel McAdams. And, you know, he's older than her in the film, but he's not, like, that much older. And I don't know. That just always, like, it always annoys me that that women, like, are made mm-hmm. to age so quickly, but men can play, like, a young kind of role, like, way longer that's a minor nitpick, but I feel but, that. Yeah, yep. I had to, I had to like suspend disbelief that you know, Rachel McAdams would be with Will Ferrell. Like that was that was tough for me to get over in the film. But yeah, the age difference. Like maybe he had like a rough life. He'd uh, he, he'd uh, he'd done some uh, difficult things. In some well, of those his Eurovision dad was a years. fisherman. Although his dad was this also Pierce Brosnan, and he looked beautiful. 
So we can't blame the rough sea air for Will Ferrell. Can we talk about how quotable so many lines are in this movie? I've been making, it's been two weeks and I'm still making jokes with Frank about play Yaya Ding Dong (laughs) or the elves or I mean, it's every bit of this movie. It's just pure joy. Oh my gosh. I feel like we're talking it up too much and someone's going to watch it after this and be like, uh look 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 it's camp right like like you don't go into this this is not like this is to me this is like a pitch perfect type of thing um and and i loved it for the same reasons i loved pitch perfect and and uh maybe slightly less because i was like an acapella head like before pitch perfect the same way that simone is like a, a eurovision head um but yeah i mean the music is legitimately really good and as someone who is a huge adherent to swedish pop in general like love it love the music and and to Bree's point, like we need this right now. Like the like the world needs like just something that makes you feel good right now. Mm-hmm. You, you said camp, and my first thought was, she's right. It's not an Oscar winner or anything. And then I thought, now hang on a minute. Not a lot of best, movies best coming song. out in twenty twenty. This here's my the beginning of my campaign for Eurovision to win best original song oh, in yeah. the in the in the Oscars. Honestly, Folks. I don't. I, I think that I think that even in a normal year, they would have a very good shot at that. They need to win. I Agreed. need this to happen. Um, I don't. I believe there's still a theatrical run requirement for that. But yeah. I fill an empty theater. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and and I, they're going to have to make a bunch of adjustments for COVID. So yeah, waive that requirement. Oh my God, all the artsy movies are coming out VOD right now. You don't want to discriminate. So I don't know. I mean, if I were Netflix, I would definitely like rent out a theater in L.A. and just just do it. If I were in the Academy, I would simply vote for this. That's what I have to say. So anyway, watch Eurovision on Netflix. Have a good time. Do what I did. Serve yourself a glass of vino. Sit down and get some songs stuck in your head for the next week. Christina, what are you doing this week? Well, I'm watching the Eurovision movie over and over again. Uh, I'm also watching Hamilton. Yeah, I'm playing Yaya Ding Dong. Um, I'm also watching Hamilton a bunch because um, I'm I'm now having a backlash to the Hamilton backlash because I feel like we had this discourse five years ago and I'm bored oh, of it. So tired so of it. So dumb. So it's I'm so just like, dumb. you don't have to like it. I don't really care if you like it or if you don't. But a lot of people are now having an opportunity to discover something that's like pretty great. So that's awesome. Uh, you know, Disney Plus really is like the gift that keeps on giving. If we're being totally honest about all of these things. Uh, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm doing work stuff. I'm, I'm making videos and writing documents and working on other things, cleaning somewhat. That's it. <laughs> Brianna, what about you? Crabriana, I like it. Uh, <laughs> Who are you? So, can I just say, so you said something three weeks ago on the show. You said the quote, toxic cycle of discourse. I think about it every single damn day. Today it was a particularly toxic day. It was so discourse. bad. It Today I just dumb. opted not to, was, I just didn't. Yeah. It, it was so dumb as hell. Someone could have a different damn opinion about something you could just accept it like an adult sometimes Mm -hmm. i don't know maybe that's just me Mm. uh what am i doing i have a huge awesome new job i took on i can't wait to tell everyone on rocket about it it is huge uh but i can't tell you about it yet so i'm working my butt off with that i spent all today in meetings and i will have something big to announce on the show soon yay yay meetings welcome to my life 
Uh, I served myself a big bowl of yogurt right before this podcast, and it's been sitting next to me for the last hour, and I can't wait to dig into it. But the rest of the stuff I'm doing this week is working on our show, Speedrun, on Quibi, and the Monday episode. Bree, thank you so much for tweeting oh, about it. Oh, it um, was so it good. Some bones, yes. Dude. Oh. So I got to play Halo with these Halo trickers who just break the game. They use glitches. They use all kinds of tools to get to places that developers never intended players to get to. Uh, like for example, this Master Chief statue in Halo Reach that was just like in the middle of nowhere outside of the like playable zone of the game. They spent 10 years figuring out how to painstakingly get to that statue. Um, and we did a trick together where they showed me how to do nonsense to get into a game, a room that the developers made specifically to film cutscenes in and no one was supposed to be in it. So they hid it underneath the map just like they just stuck it in there because games are amazing. Um, and they figured out that they could make the uh, respawn area of a character comprise the cutscene room. So if you died, if you go through this painstaking thing, you can get to a place where you can die and then respawn inside the cutscene room. It is amazing. They are geniuses. <laughs> I think. I think they're geniuses. I agree. And they were so, so, so nice to me. Like, their answers to the questions I asked were so thoughtful, and they were so patient when they took me to find the cutscene room. And it was just a really, really lovely experience. Uh, the group is called Termacious Tricosity. Um, so, yeah, I recommend that you watch that episode, because I it's really good. Can I tell everybody out there, like, Simone's going to be far too modest about this. It really is spellbinding. This is a famous glitch. I've read about it in theory. Like, she went out and did it. And it's just a, a it's like Eurovision. It's a joy to watch. So Thank I 100% you. endorse this video. Yay. Thank you so much. Um, we have two more exciting episodes coming out this week, although one will already be out by the time you hear this podcast. And that's Wednesday's episode where our correspondent Mari Takahashi plays Fallout 76 with a group of cannibals. So enjoy. <laughs> okay. Serving that up for your pleasure. Uh, Christina, where can we find you online? You can find me at film underscore girl on the Twitters and the Instagrams. And you can find the videos that I make at work at youtube.com slash Microsoft developer. Brianna, what about you? Uh, find me on the Twitter machine at Brianna Wu. And you can find me on Twitter at Doom Quasar at youtube.com slash polygon and on Quibi. Thank you so much for listening to this show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, vote for Eurovision to win Best Original Song at the Oscars. <laughs> all, yes. my, all my motion picture, MPAA, I think is the right organization. Listeners? Uh, Ampes. Ampes. Yep. All of you guys, vote. <laughs> I know you're out there. Uh, everyone else, uh, actually, I heard Recording that Academy you, people, too. Yeah. I heard if you leave a review, a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and um, tell a friend about it, tell a friend to vote for Eurovision, that that will work also to help Eurovision win Best Original Song. That's just like what people in, in Clubhouse are saying, actually, these days. It I is. heard the call. It's, 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 it's a glitch. I will not share the audio. <sighs> Nor will anyone else on this podcast. Uh Anyway, hey, this episode of Rocket is terminated. 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 <laughs>